We are so excited to have Matt Ayers here with us today. Matt is the new president of Wesley Biblical Seminary, and he also recently just got back from serving in Haiti for 13 years. Uh, Matt is a man of God and an anointed preacher, so we are so excited for the message he's going to share with us. So I'll go ahead and hand it over to Matt. Thank you. Well, greetings, everyone. Uh, these are certainly strange times during COVID. And uh, while we're talking about Pentecost this week, I do want to mention one thing before jumping into the heart and the thrust of the message that the Holy Spirit has laid on my heart for our time together. Um, I'm friends with many pastors. Uh, in my time in Haiti, I was the president of a Christian university. And in that university, our core program was a bachelor's in divinity program where all of our students were training to be in full-time ministry. And in fact, most of our students were already in full-time ministry. And when COVID hit Haiti, they all had to disperse. They couldn't gather together. That's hard here in our North American context and our Western context that we're all familiar with. But I think it's especially hard in Haiti where people live outside. It's a much more people-oriented culture where technology doesn't always stand in between people as much as it does here in our context. So pastors had to find ways to get creative for reaching their people, to get the message out, to be teaching the word, to fulfill their calling. Much like so many pastors here in the, in, in the United States, in North America, were having to get creative. I never thought I'd be preaching Pentecost 2020 in front of a, a camera to a room with just a few people. No one could have anticipated this. And as I talked to my friends in Haiti, my pastor friends and my colleagues, and as I talked to my pastor friends here in the States, there's this sense of frustration. There's this sense of challenge. Uh, part of the frustration is not knowing what the future holds. We share this challenge with our pastors, with our shepherds. Uh, we share the challenge of not being accustomed to not being together physically in a space as we worship. We're physical people. God created everything. We're going to talk about the creation in our time together. But he created everything and he called it good. And Jesus put on flesh and he lived amongst us. There's something to be said about incarnational theology, being in the same space as one another. So this has been an adjustment. It's been difficult. It's been challenging. I almost think of David. Saul said to David, go and try on my armor. And he said, it just didn't fit. It was awkward. It was too big. And so many of us, not just our pastors, but even us, Christians, not just Christians, but non-Christians, this is strange. It's odd. It just doesn't fit. And as we're thinking about the Holy Spirit on this day of Pentecost, I think about the symbols of the Holy Spirit inside of the scriptures. It's a great way to remind us of the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We see water as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. We see the dove as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. We see fire. We see wind, which is also similar to breath. But we also see oil. And oil is probably the most robust of all the symbols for the Holy Spirit inside of the scriptures. One of the places we see oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit is in the book of Leviticus. And there's this strange ordination ritual for the Levitical priests in Leviticus where they're told to take blood of a sacrifice and wipe it on the big toe of the right foot, the thumb of the right hand, and the earlobe of the right ear. It's so strange. And then after the blood, they're supposed to take uh, oil and wipe it on the same place, big toe of the right foot, thumb of the right hand, and earlobe of the right ear. 
So what does this symbolize? What does it mean? And how does oil represent the Holy Spirit in this context? Well, for starters, I think the first is clear. With the right toe, the Holy Spirit illuminates our path. He shows us where to go. I love this. In the midst of struggling with how are we supposed to exist during a COVID crisis, during social distancing, do I need my mask? Is this restaurant open? Can I go to the grocery store? What are the hours? It's confusing and it's frustrating. But in the midst of that, we remember that the Holy Spirit illuminates our path. He guides us to show us and instruct us. I don't know how people who aren't people of faith are existing during times like this where they simply have to trust the government or intuition to know what to do and what not to do, how to respond in these circumstances that we've never faced before. Thankfully, Christians, we have the Holy Spirit to guide our path. The foot. I want to go to the earlobe. Hearing, listening, and it's similar to the foot. The Holy Spirit gives us discernment and wisdom. There's a doctrine of the clarity of Scripture that talks about the fact that the message of the text is clear for those who read it with the goal of obeying and loving God with the help of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us to interpret the Word. The Gospel is complex. The Word of God is even more complex. It's so difficult to understand. I struggle with questions of interpretation, not in my heart, but in my mind, in the classroom with seminary students. But praise God we have the Holy Spirit to open our ears so that we can understand the clear meaning of the text. I'm grateful for this. Now here's what I wanted to talk about in more detail before getting into my message. The right hand. I have one particular pastor friend who just doesn't like preaching to a camera. I don't know who does like preaching to a camera. Uh, there are some who like preaching to cameras. None of them are my friends. Uh, well, I, that's, that sounded wrong. Okay. Uh, it's, it's awkward, you know, because preaching is a conversation. You read body language and, 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 uh, and uh, micro expressions of the face, and, and you're reading, and you're having a conversation with the people that you're talking to, and they're speaking using nonverbal cues. And so talking to a camera is, is challenging. It's awkward. It's not something to get used to. And uh, so often, he, I, I text him on Sundays, how did the message go? And he's just frustrated. It's so awkward, preaching to a camera. I don't. But here's the beauty of the right hand. The Holy Spirit makes the work of our hands beautiful. The Holy Spirit purifies and makes the work of the church and people who are called and people who serve Christians beautiful. To us, it may feel awkward. It may feel strange. It may feel like Saul's armor on David. But we have to remember that as we're trying to adjust the best we can with our human imperfections, that it's not our work, it's the Holy Spirit's work. And while we may feel like our contribution and what feels like fumbling around makes God's work deficient in the world, the Holy Spirit's the one who completes the work and makes it perfect. He's in the right hand. It's a symbol of our contributions as servants of the Lord into the world. Yes, it's weird, it's awkward, but guess what? You were weird and awkward before COVID, and the Holy Spirit was able to use you then, and you're even more weird and awkward now, and the Holy Spirit can use you now. In our weaknesses, he is strong. This is a time of weakness. It's a time of humbling, and we're grateful that we have the Holy Spirit help us. Don't be discouraged, Christians, if you feel like you're thwarted in your efforts to obey the Lord during a time of crisis, especially those of you who want to hug others and pray for others and grab that hand and visit the person with my dear friend. 
uh, diagnosed with COVID today, and I want to go to the hospital. My first response was, I'm going to go to the hospital and visit. I can't do that. The Holy Spirit can. And we're grateful that the Holy Spirit guides our hands and makes the work of our hands beautiful. Okay, that being said, now time for the message. Um, it's, it's challenging when talking about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, which means that he's eternal. He's eternally preexistent, which means he existed forever before time, and even the idea of forever is contingent upon the idea of time. So it doesn't make sense to say forever before time. We as human beings made in God's image, we are eternal in the sense that our soul never dies as image bearers. The scripture teaches us this, but we're not eternally pre-existent. We don't exist before our conception. The Holy Spirit, however, is eternally pre-existent. He goes on forever that way. He goes on forever that way. He goes on forever that way. And he goes on forever that way. And even more so. Which means that during a 20, 25-minute time once a year on Pentecost, it's not adequate to talk about the Holy Spirit because you can't exhaust talking about the Holy Spirit. In the same way, you can't exhaust talking about the Father or the Son. So it's challenging to be selective as a teacher and as a preacher to decide what is it that I'm going to share. Thankfully, I have the Holy Spirit to help me. Don't you love that we need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand the Holy Spirit? Uh, thank you, Holy Spirit. I don't have to choose what I'm going to say about you. You get to choose what I'm going to say about you. And here's another interesting thing about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit never talks about himself. He always talks about Jesus. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But here's the challenge. I'm going to preach on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, what do you want me to say? And he says, talk about Jesus. No, no, I, I know, I know, but it's Pentecost, and we're supposed to talk about the Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, what message do you want to put on my heart? The message of Jesus. Well, the Holy Spirit is self-effacing, which means he always wants to move to the background and put Jesus in the foreground. He wants to shine the spotlight on Jesus. We see this in the scriptures. Jesus says really clearly in the book of John that the, the job of the Holy Spirit is to glorify him, is to glorify Jesus. We're going to talk about that more in detail. But there's another place in a roundabout way that we see that the Holy Spirit is always talking about Jesus. And that is through the story of the, the, the men on the road to Emmaus. Do you guys remember this story? After the resurrection, these two men are walking on the road to Emmaus, and they're sad because uh, Jesus, the one that they had hoped was the prophet, in the likeness of Moses to come and deliver them from Roman oppression, which they thought was the problem. The problem wasn't them, it's me. And we have to be careful about that in this day and age. With so much injustice and crime and corruption and tyranny in the world, that our human nature is always to say, look, they are the problem. That group is the problem. That race is the problem. That person is the problem. When the Holy Spirit's at work in us, however, that changes. Our language, our rhetoric changes to say, I'm the problem. The Holy Spirit helps us to see this. So anyway, they're walking on the road to Emmaus. They think Jesus is dead. He's alive. Jesus shows up. They don't know who he is. Then they realize who he is. And it says that he began to explain to them how the entirety of the word, Genesis 
to at that point Malachi, because the New Testament hadn't been written yet, spoke about him beginning to end. And we all know this. You'd pick up the scriptures as we have it today as Christians, Genesis to Revelation, and the entire thing is pointing to one person, Jesus. What does that have to do with the Holy Spirit? Who inspired the book? The Holy Spirit inspired the book. So if this book that the Holy Spirit whispered into the ears of human authors, and we're not getting into the technicalities of how that works, because a great deal of it's a mystery, not dictation, but the Holy Spirit inspires this book, and this book is all about Jesus, then we know the Holy Spirit is constantly talking about who? Jesus. Jesus didn't say to them, let me show you how Genesis to Malachi talks all about the Holy Spirit. He didn't say that because the Holy Spirit doesn't talk about himself. He says, let me show you how it talks about me. So another evidence, another proof that shows that the Holy Spirit doesn't like to put himself forward. So I tried the best I can in my human limitation and my human imperfections to honor the Holy Spirit on this Pentecost Sunday by talking about him in the way that he likes to be talked about. And that is in the shadow of Jesus. If we can pull that off, Holy Spirit, I need your help. Now, <clears throat> in talking about the Holy Spirit, I want to zoom way out. There's so much that we can say. We talked about the symbol of oil. We could talk about water and fire and the points of comparison, wind and the dove, between those symbols and the Holy Spirit. I don't want to do that. I don't sense his calling to do that. What I want to do is talk about the day of Pentecost as we read about it in Acts 2, and how it relates all the way back to the beginning of Genesis 1. I want to look at the big picture and talk about what does the Holy Spirit's coming mean when we read it in light of Genesis chapter 1. And in fact, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, and the entirety of the Old Testament. So I want to take a big picture perspective. Because I think it helps us to gain a little bit more of a different angle than how we're used to thinking about the Holy Spirit. It helps us to put the emphasis on something that we have lacked putting an emphasis on, and that is the big picture of the Scriptures. Where does the Holy Spirit fit in? Okay, so let's start with this. In the story of the creation, and this helps me to talk to those here here with me, I'm going to ask some questions. How many days did it take for God to create everything? Oh, I heard, I heard conflicting answers, and this is common. Six or seven. It took him six days to create. That's the right answer. Uh, on the seventh day, he rested, which is technically a part of the creation process, is resting. R resting is productive. I have a hard time with this. I love doing things and achievement and all these sorts of things. But resting is actually a part of the creative process. You can't create if you're not rested. So it's kind of a blurred line. Six, seven, okay. Let's go with six. Six is his creating activity, not his resting activity. Now I'm going to really test your Bible knowledge. What did God create on day one? Most people get this wrong. Uh, okay, that's the wrong answer I get most common, is heavens and the earth. And that is what Genesis 1 says. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that is what we call a merism that describes everything that he's about to create. It's like God created the heavens and the earth, and it went like this. On the first day he created, does that make sense? Okay. So on the first day, what did God create? 
He created stuff, okay? Starts with an L and ends with it. Light, brilliant, okay. God created light on day one. What did God create on day two? This one is by far the most incorrect answer I get. No, God did not create night. Uh, it does say that he created light and separated the light from the darkness. It does say that in day one, but he didn't technically create darkness. Well, he did because he created everything. I, we don't get the technical. Darkness was, <laughs> darkness was already there, technically. The tohu, it was emptiness and void and darkness. And Jesus, he created light and separated the light from the darkness. And there, there night was. So day two, what does God create? It starts with an F. And ends with, starts with an F and ends with firmament. Firmament, very good. Catching on. All right, firmament. And this is strange. He creates a space. God creates a space. And it says he separates the waters above and the waters below. And this is an ancient Near Eastern worldview where they thought that there was water up there because the idea of rain coming down, right, from the sky. They thought there were windows up there. And the windows kind of opened. Rain would come down. The windows would close. So there's water up there and there's water down here. So day one, light. Day two, the space, the firmament. Day three, what does God create? Uh, yeah, earth, dry land is what it says. Day three, God creates dry land. So days one to three, excuse me, <coughs> light, firmament, and dry land. Now, as we move on from days one to three, and we go to days four, five, and six, we're going to see that there's a correspondence between uh, the first three days and the second set of three days. So in other words, day one corresponds to day four. You can think of a column, or, or excuse me, two columns with three rows. Days one and four are in this row. Days two and five are in this row. Days three and six are in this row. Does that make sense? One to three column, four to six column. So day four corresponds to one. So one, God created what? Light. Day four, what does God create? The heavenly bodies, and he's not talking about people that go to the gym. He's talking about the greater light and the lesser lights. So the sun, the moon, and stars. Now, pause for a minute. Sun, moon, and stars, day four. What does it create day one? Light. Do you see the correspondence between those? Okay. Day five, what does God create? He creates the fish who live in the waters below. And the birds who live in the space above. Make sense? Day two, firmament. So you, are you beginning to see how this is developing? Okay, before we go to day uh, six, let's remember, what does God create on day three? No, that's day four. Dry land, okay? So day six, what does God create? Humanity and land-dwelling animals. So do you see the correspondence? So Day six, you have the inhabitants of day three. Day five, you have the inhabitants of day two. Day four, you have the inhabitants of day one. So days one to three, you have your forming days. God forms spaces. Days four, five, and six, you have your filling days. Days one, two, and three, we call the habitats. Days four, five, and six, the inhabitants. Does that make sense? He forms a space, and then he fills the space. Are you following me so far? Okay, now, we're going to get to the Holy Spirit. Just hang with and We're going to get to Pentecost here for just a moment. But there's another aspect of this forming and filling that we have to drive home really, really clearly. 
His filling is not done on day six. Yes, he creates the inhabitants of the dry land, that is humanity, and land-dwelling animals. But he endows humanity with something special. And what is that? Starts with an I and ends with midge of God. (laughs) The image of God. Brilliant. Then he says to them, have dominion and be fruitful and multiply. So God's plan is to fill the rest of creation through the, follow this, it sounds technical, but it gets clear, through the mechanism of the multiplication of humanity as image bearers. Does that make sense? As humanity obeys God's command and humanity is fruitful and multiplies, humanity, humanity then begins to fill the rest of the creation thereby putting a a peak or a climactic top to this forming and filling motif. Humanity's job is to finish the creation project by filling it, by being fruitful and multiplying. Almost there. And as they do, as image bearers, they spread the image of God all over the creation. Does that make sense? So they're fruitful, they multiply, they fill the creation, and God's image, which is concentrated right there on Adam and Eve, spreads and grows and fills all of the creation. And as a result, this is the, this is the home run, hallelujah chorus, uh, symbols, fireworks, as a result, God's glory fills the creation. Does that make sense? The whole goal of the creation project is not your happiness, it's the glory of God. God's goal in creating, his creation project, is to fill this creation with his own glory. How's he going to do it? He's going to create humanity with his image, and they're going to be fruitful and multiply and go out and fill this thing with the image of God and thereby glorify him. Does that make sense? The creation project, the entire aim, is filling the creation with the glory of God through the multiplication of God's image bearers. That's a mouthful. But this sets us up for the rest of Scripture. And this sets us up to understand better what's happening in Acts 4 when the Holy Spirit comes. But before we're ready to jump into that, that, I said Acts 4, Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, we have to deal with Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3 is the fall. Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation of the serpent. And the throne of the creation, rather than the creation being filled with the God's glory, the enemy fills it with his own glory. He usurps humanity. And the glory now, rather than being God's, belongs to the adversary. He is the one who's glorified because of their rebellion. So instead of this creation being filled with the image of God, it's filled with the image of the fallen one. It's filled and reigned over by death, tyranny, and corruption. And we read about it in the news every single day. Rather than the glory belonging to the creator, the glory belongs to the serpent. That's the problem. And that's where God launches his creation rescue. He's got to get his creation filling with his glory. 
He needs a plan. And that's what the rest of the scripture is about. That's what the, the entirety of the rest of the scripture is about. That's the forming and filling. Now, whew, that's a lot, right? Technicality. The strange thing, this is a new idea to a lot of people, and it shouldn't be. We should know that the whole point of this Christianity thing is filling the creation with God's glory. But before we get there, let's, let's just adjust, slow down, and say this. Genesis 1 is not the only time that God formed and filled. We also saw this in Jesus' ministry. Jesus also formed and filled. Where do we see this? Um, is anyone here a teacher? Okay, we have one teacher, and I'm another teacher. As teachers, we learn this fancy thing called pedagogical methods. And what does that mean? Ways of teaching. Different there are different methodologies of teaching. What's one way you can teach someone something? Okay, you can lecture at them. You can just talk to them. So listening, okay? Talking and listening. What's, someone said another one that was good. Yeah, hands-on or showing them. Let me show you how to do this. I do this with my son who can't talk yet, right? And so I have to show him how to do things. Jesus is the best teacher. And he had all different ways of teaching. What's one way Jesus taught? Okay, I heard different things. Miracles. Miracles is absolutely one of Jesus' strategies for teaching. Jesus doesn't perform miracles simply to get attention or to be cool, although it does accomplish those things. He performs miracles to teach something. For example, when he walks on water, what's the lesson there? That he's the master of nature. That means that he's a part of the Godhead. According to the Old Testament, only Yahweh could control nature. Nature only obeys the creator, not the creation. So when Jesus says, quiet, and it obeys, the lesson is, this guy's God. Does that make sense? Or when he begins to, what's another way Jesus, uh, so miracles, he teaches through miracles. What's another way? Par yes, parables. He says, let me tell you what this is like. Let me explain it with an analogy. The kingdom of God is like this. It's like a mustard seed. Or the kingdom of God is like a sower who went out to seed or etc. So parables. What's another way that Jesus taught? He just stood up and taught, just kind of like what I'm doing. He says, sit down, I want to talk to you. He, what we call discourse, he just teaches. This, this is the Sermon on the Mount, right? Um, what's another way that he taught? Okay, yeah, that's what we're after. It's, it's what I like to call act speech. He didn't say anything, he just did it, and it was packed with meaning. So give me an example of when he did this, when Jesus did something and it communicated a lesson. It taught them something, aside from miracles. Wonderful example. Yes, he washes the disciples' feet. It's his way of saying that we don't have categories for humans. We're all equal. That's his, that, there's other messages there, but that's one. Peter had to get that through his head. We have to get that through our heads. What's another one, the most obvious one? Okay, he healed people. I would classify that as miracle. Foot washing is not really a miracle, right? So let's try to stay away from miracles. What's another thing that Jesus did? No words that was packed with meaning. Died on the cross, yes. So Jesus' most intense lesson in theology, he didn't say, sit down and tell you something. He did that. He didn't say it then, though. The most important lesson, he didn't say, 
the kingdom of God is like this. And he didn't do a miracle. He went up and he died. Very little speech, right? But is that moment not packed with meaning? I love you, right? That's, that's the message there. I love you. You are worth living for. You are worth dying for. Uh, the other one is um, communion, the Last Supper, packed with meaning, right? He didn't say, now let me explain, and he didn't get into the technical, like theologians do, the technical details of the blood and the wine. He just said, look, this is my body, this is my blood. And they're going, what now? So now here's the interesting thing. I think we can all agree that Jesus was a great teacher. Do we agree? If he was such a great teacher, why did the disciples never understand what he was talking about? If, if, if I were Jesus, I would think I wasn't being very effective. Because every time I taught something, they said, I don't understand. Can you explain that again? We didn't understand. Can you explain that parable? I didn't get it. I'd be going, am I doing something wrong? What, what am I doing that's not effective as a teacher? To the point where Jesus told the disciples he would raise from the dead over and over and over again. And they didn't believe him, right? So constantly, because they weren't there the day of the resurrection, were they there waiting for him to walk out of the tomb? They weren't there waiting for him to walk out of the tomb. They were there with oils and perfumes to prepare a cadaver. You know, there was someone there, but it was for the wrong reason. Interesting. Nonetheless, <coughs> the disciples, even though Jesus was a great teacher, they didn't get it. So what was happening? Jesus was forming in order to fill them. When did it click for the disciples? When did it click? What moment? The day of? Pentecost. Does that make sense? He formed them to fill them. It's on the day that they became filled that they understood. Now, I haven't tied this into the creation thing yet. That's what we're going to do here now. But my point is, Old Testament forming and filling is taking place. The, old, the creation. New Testament forming and filling is taking place. But this time... The new creation is Jesus' followers, or are Jesus' followers. That's us. And so often, we go to church, and we're formed, but we're not filled. And we have to be really cautious that we're not empty vessels walking about. Because he, he forms us to fill us, to then set us on a mantle. What is, what's the purpose of being filled? To then pour us out. That makes sense. He fills, he forms us, he fills us, and then he pours us out. Now, we could dive, our time is up. We could dive into detail about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. A good friend of mine said it this way. A lot of people think about being filled with the Holy Spirit wrong. They have the idea that it means getting more of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what it is. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't get more of him. He gets more of you talking about total consecration. But back to this idea of Jesus forming the new creation and then filling the new creation to then pour out the new creation. And here we have the image. Here we have the image of God's creation project restored. As he fills his church with the Holy Spirit and then pours out his church into the world. And the Holy Spirit's presence, the presence of God, gets dispensed into the world as they fulfill the Great Commission. And they're fruitful. 
and they multiply, God's creation project to fill the creation is back on track. Do you see the image here? As we go forth as Christians, we're formed, we're filled, and then we're poured out, God is glorified. So let's say this to finish, and I'm going to invite you guys up. Come on up. Let's say this to finish. I said at the very beginning that the primary job of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. I want to piggyback off of, piggyback off of that to say that when he pours into us and then we get poured out into the world, Jesus is glorified. He glorifies Jesus through us. So that is the version of God's creation project being restored. Jesus is glorified. I want to pray for us. <clears throat> and I want to pray two things. First, that we would be filled, not just formed. And for forgiveness for being satisfied with just being formed. So I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us this Pentecost. And I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would not just fill us, but pour us out into the world so that Jesus would be glorified and that we would go forth from the church and go out of the church and fulfill the creation project of filling the world with the glory of God by looking like Jesus. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your word. We thank you for nourishing us, for cleansing us, for protecting us, for warming us, for illuminating us, for guiding us. We are so indebted. And you're so humble, you stay hidden. And we don't even know it's you. And you're working in our hearts. But we want more. We don't just want more of you, but we want to give more of ourselves to you. We want you to take more over. We want you to fill us. Holy Spirit, forgive us for being satisfied with just being formed. Help us to be hungry, to be filled with more so that we can be poured out for the sake of God's glory. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.